I wrote him a beautiful handwritten letter, mm-hmm. put it in the mailbox and thought nothing of it. And then, of course, six weeks later, I got a letter back. And this man basically said to me, you sound so passionate about champagne. I'm not answering your questions in writing. Get on a plane, come to Paris, no. and I will teach you everything I know. So my guest for today is Kyla Kirkpatrick, also known as the Champagne Dame. Kyla has always had an innate passion for champagne since a young age and decided early on to give up her career in banking and finance and move to France to learn about the art of oenology from the very best in the Champagne region. Kyla started her business, Champagne Dame, in 2008 with the aim of educating people through her champagne masterclasses and insider tours of Champagne, where Kyla takes her guests to some of the most prestigious champagne houses. She successfully launched her champagne business, Amper Champagne, with her partner, Curie. Amper Champagne is now one of Australia's largest champagne importer and distributors. Kyla is also a star in the latest season of Real Housewives of Melbourne, based on the international franchise Real Housewives. There is no doubt Kyla has an in-depth knowledge of champagne and I sure as hell am keen to learn a lot more about champagne in this chat and about her experiences on reality TV. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I sound, I feel tired just listening to my intro. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, I've got a lot going on. You do have a lot going on because you're a busy, busy woman. Yes. Now, I want to talk about the first time we met, I think now it's about three years ago, through a mutual friend of ours, Emma Rosen, and yes. we met at the Good Food and Wine Show, and I remember, remember this very clearly. First impressions, God, she's stunning. <laughs> vivacious you're you're incredibly fun and down to earth and you had this airstream with your branding on there champagne sure. yeah, yeah and cool. and you and you were you were there and you were just meeting and greeting people and I thought oh my gosh and then I met your partner Kiri and I'm like what an incredible duo because the both of you just know so much and he's a sommelier isn't he yeah, he's a sommelier he's a winemaker by profession training on onology mm. and he's sommelier by practice and now we run the business together so yeah we have slightly different skill sets but very very complementary and very incredibly complementary and I think that's really interesting because you live together you work together you've got a kid together mm-hmm. how do you separate that and have that work-life balance it's actually the biggest challenge of my life. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I it's, bet. It's the one thing that I haven't quite mastered and, you know, truthfully, and I'm sure we'll talk about reality TV later, but, yeah. you know, you'll see a lot on the show of Kiri and I behind closed doors trying to find ah. the parts of our relationship that we need to bring back to life because the work side of things yeah. is so dominant, mm-hmm. you know, and we were talking to, to Bruce and Sheikha Kibra, you know, two other industry stalwarts from the big group about how they – juggle their relationship and their work-life balance. It's not an easy thing to do working with your partner, but, you know, you, you've got to have respect. You've got to have a mutual passion. We have that. And, um, and trust, don't yes. you think? Someone you can trust as well. And that's important because, you know, staff come and go. That's that's one thing that is for certain. People come and go, but you really want to know that you've got someone who's got your back, especially when you, you own your own business and you work hard and you've got a lot of – balls in the air and you know I've got two businesses three businesses now I've just launched another one with Fiztopia and I'm filming and I've got a lot going on so I need to know that there's someone behind the scenes keeping it all together. Absolutely I'm really obviously very curious now I want to go into 
the whole world of champagne. You know so much and you're a connoisseur of it. I want to know, obviously there was this turning point where you had, you know, you, you started your career in banking and finance yeah. and, you know, what made you go, I am going to go to France and learn about everything I know about champagne and want to know and just also from the the best places and the best people. How do you even start? Well, I think for me it all goes back to childhood. Yeah. You know, a lot of our decisions in life, you can link back to to points in your childhood. And for me, I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne. I grew up in a working class family, not a you know, great family, but we we didn't have a lot of money. Life was very simple and yeah. my form of escapism was to read, you know, and in the end I became very intelligent. I was top of my class, I was top of my school, Amazing. I was top of my university, but I did a lot of reading because that was my way of taking me out of what I felt to be very mundane, very ordinary life. You know, I quite yeah. often ask my mum, mum, are, sh- are you sure I'm not adopted? Are you sure I didn't get mixed up in the hospital? Because <laughs> I was convinced that this boring life in, you know, Bacchus Marsh and Melton was not my life. You know, I was destined for something bigger and more glamorous. And, yeah. you know, I used to put on plays and you know, use proper English and, you know, I was just such a, you know, an odd one out, so to speak. And that interest in religion and theology and um, archaeology and architecture and and language, all these topics, you know, I was the six-year-old child watching, you know, ABC and CNN and documentaries where my sister would constantly be fighting me to turn back to cartoons. Is it just the two of you? Just the two of us. And we were chalk and cheese. We never got along. Still are? Still, still, you know, are we just very different human beings? And, you know, in 2005, I'd already been working in banking and finance and one day I picked up um, the newspaper and read a long-form article on Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. You know, first emperor of France, self-proclaimed, but that's okay. I'm a self-proclaimed champagne dame. And, um, you know, his story, and then I'm like, wow, what a fascinating story. So I picked up a book on war and wine and then I'm like, wow, the link between wine and war is phenomenal. You know, I want to read more about champagne and that's how it started. And pretty soon I'd read every piece of literature you could possibly find on champagne and I'd I'd run out of books. You know, it was 2005, it wasn't a big industry. I mean, it was a big industry, but it wasn't as written about as it is today. Yeah. And, um, was there any one particular book that you yes. that you remember and still would read today? Yes. Well, fundamentally, I'm a businesswoman. You know, first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a businesswoman. And there was a little book written by a man called Daniel Ginsberg, and it was the art and business of champagne. It was a self-published book, tiny, minuscule little publication. And he owned a vineyard in France, and he was a businessman. He talked about the history of champagne, which is fascinating, linked with kings and queens and colourful characters and you know, now rock stars and rappers. But anyway, you know, he wrote this beautiful book that just hit every note for me. And in the back of the book was his address. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to write this man a letter and ask him all the questions that hasn't been answered for me yet. So I literally Oh my God, that's amazing. You know, this is sort of pre-Facebook and which seems hard to believe, but pre-Facebook, I didn't know what he looked like. He didn't know what I looked like. I wrote him a beautiful handwritten letter Mm -hmm put it in the mailbox and thought nothing of it. And then, of course, six weeks later, I got a letter back. And this man basically said to me, you sound so passionate about champagne. I'm not answering your questions in writing. Get on a plane, come to Paris, and I will teach you everything I know. No. And that was one of the – I still get goosebumps when I tell this story, but that was one of those sliding doors moments in life. Now, I could have gone for a weekend. I could have gone for a week, you know. I could have stretched it out to a month, but I – 
thought, fuck it, I'm going forever. <laughs> and I unraveled my you. life. You know, I left my partner, I gave away my dog, I sold my house, I packed up my possessions, I bought a one-way ticket to Paris and I got on that plane and by the time I got off at the other end, I'd resolved to myself that I would have a new life, a new destiny and a new beginning and that's what I did. You know, oh I walked like a dame and I talked like a dame and I embodied that life and I read about French history and I studied at the Sorbonne in Paris and I just threw myself wholeheartedly you into a new French passion. You speak French as well? I speak yeah. polite French. Yeah. It's pretty rusty yeah. um, after doing a degree in Mandarin. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm, I can certainly navigate my way around and translate for a winemaker and order wine when I need to. <laughs> Get myself out the of a hot man's apartment. <laughs> well, the important stuff, really. <laughs> all the important things, yeah. So that, that's where it all started. That was 2005. And then while I was in Champagne, just sort of kicking around with all the the vignerons and asking lots of questions and, you know, getting to know the families of the Champagne region and and learning my craft, that's when I had the offer from LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, to to take a role with them. I was trained whilst living in Paris, which was quite extraordinary. Um, You know, just an incredible, incredible journey. Experience. What a cool experience. Amazing. So how long were you in France for? Uh, about nine months in my first yeah, trip okay. and then again and then a second back. time. I did about another nine months in 2008 Yeah, and then I go back for six weeks every year. So you worked for Moet Hennessy and what were you doing there for them? I was actually doing a new role and my job was to build relationships between large corporations, other luxury brands yeah. and our champagnes. Right. So I would present for Kerry Packer, I would present for Elle McPherson, I would present for Channel 9, Channel 10, Macquarie Bank, you know, all the big banks as well as other brands, whether it's, you know, Chanel or Gucci, etc. And I was taught how to present and how to tell the story of champagne. And I'm very different in the way that I educate on champagne because for me it's not just a wine. For me, it's history in every bottle. You know, I want to know who made it. I want to know who his mother was. I want to know who his grandfather was. I want to know what the trials and tribulations and life what the life was for these families. And we forget that champagne brands aren't brands. They're names of human beings. Of course. The great Verve Clicquot, the great Mm. Madame Clicquot, you know, people call it Verve, Mm. which is very disrespectful because Mm. that means (laughs) it's referring to widow, the Mm. widow Clicquot. Verve means widow. And, you know, she rolls in a grave every time someone says that around the world. But her story was phenomenal. She was one of the first businesswomen of all time. She was the first woman to export a product. She was the first woman to create, you know, in Champagne, a branded label which had a colour on it, you know, which was the colour of her favourite duck's yolk. People thought she was mad. But all these extraordinary tales, you know, and I just – I never, never tire of working this industry because there's so many wonderful stories to tell. And how how many champagne producers are there? It's over 3,000. Oh, gosh. You know, and for a long time, this is how Empress started, for a long time only the big brands made it to Australia and all those tiny little producers that are so high in their quality weren't making it here. I guess it's very similar to wine as well. Like, you know, yeah. we have a lot of little vineyards here that produce yes. amazing wines, which, yes. you know, they, they also don't get noticed a lot. But some of the best wines come from those smaller vineyards, aren't they? This is true. You know, and we've had this um, move to craft, you know, smaller producers in beer. We've had this massive emergence of craft beer. We've had this massive emergence of craft gin, craft vodka, boutique wineries. But it wasn't happening in the champagne industry. And that's why I started Emperor Champagne. We have the largest range of champagnes probably in the world now. Yeah, I reckon oh, wow. there's only one other producer, which is a company called Gulp in Italy. Right. Um, we have about 300 different champagnes oh by the bottle. 
and another two oh containers gosh. on the way. Actually, a third got signed off this morning. So, you know, we're constantly exploring. Kiri, my partner, rang me this morning. He's like, do you remember that tiny little producer in the south of Champagne that does these gorgeous pictures on the bottles like the Little Prince? And I'm like, yeah, I got them this morning. You know, they, they, <laughs> they're going to be on a boat on Monday. So, you know, we still share this passion yeah. for Champagne and we're constantly exploring and we're so happy that we have so many customers that have taken the journey with us and get to experience of the, course the champagne like we do well because you take them on tours when you start at champagne dame yes. so you used to take them on tour so was that a yearly thing or you know every few times a year i personally would love to go i would um, thank you it's i, I would love i'd love to do uh, the cheese and, and and wine and i also love to go to jura region as well i'll come with you um, afterwards yeah and we can do cheese where where Comte comes from and all that sort of stuff. I'd love to do that. Um, But talk to me about the tours that you do. How do you get a group of people and then you take them away and do they come back just feeling absolutely, you know, mesmerised? Yes, is Mm. the word. And it's not something you'll do once, I promise you that. The way it started was that I would go back to France every French summer. So June, July. So I've never missed a year apart from COVID of going to Paris June and July. It's... It makes me feel alive. The minute I get off that plane, I'm whistling. You know, you know, you see those cartoons when you're in love and you hear the birds are chirping mm. and the butterflies. <laughs> That's how I feel every time I arrive yeah, in Paris. Exhilarated. Exhilarated. Champagne and, and, and Paris. Champagne is in, your, in your blood. <laughs> it, it is. It just it makes me feel alive. It's like being born again. I have such a passion for it. Every time I get off that plane, I just smile. It's just the baguettes taste better, mm. the bread tastes better, <laughs> the men are more beautiful, the, everything's better. <laughs> but I used to do this every year and I would go and, and my champagne partners would roll out this red carpet and I'd do these decadent lunches and all these handsome champenoir and I would do all these amazing tastings. And my clients used to say to me, oh, my God, your tour looked amazing. You know, Could I come with you? Yeah. Can I tag along one year? And I went, I don't see why not. So I created my first tour in yeah. 2013. I was heavily pregnant. I fainted three times. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and I kept going, of course, because I'm a trooper. You know, my poor partner was carrying me up flights oh of stairs God. in the chateau to get me to bed each at the end of each day. But I did my first tour and... Two people on that tour booked again for the following year. Oh, wow. And then it started to snowball. And then we became, you know, we're almost world famous for our insider's tours of champagne. Yeah. And then, you know, people now try and replicate them or even copy them themselves, which is impossible, let me tell you. you got to um, live and breathe it. You do. And, but the, so the champenoir now almost try and outdo each other. Oh, you did that experience at this. So mm. we're going to do this next year. And, you know, what we create, it's basically black tie dinners every night and we do long soirees and garden mm. parties and amazing tastings. We stay in a beautiful chateau. But my my tours were booked out almost three years in advance. Oh my god! Before COVID, I've got about a hundred on the waiting list, and I'm so pleased to say that I booked flights to Paris. Have you? Week. Oh my god! And for, for June, July, next June, year? July oh next god. year. I'm taking two tours, yeah. which are already full. So, how um, long did the tours last? It's a week. A week. It's a week to indulge in a bit of you more. Yeah, so we'll see. I'm going to come back with two. (laughs) Can can you extend it to August? Because it's still good weather in August. It is, but all the champenoir anywhere in Europe from the 1st of August, which is a frustration as a champagne importer, Uh you know, they're all sunning themselves in the Riviera by the 1st. Like, it's, it's, wouldn't you? Crickets in champagne in the 1st of August. So people turn up expecting to do a visit, nothing. So even the restaurants are closed. So normally I would do June and July and I would take people over that period. I do four tours back to back and my partner, um, who's at Curie's actually an Italian wine expert, believe it or not. So Is he's he? doing Tuscany. <laughs> so this year he does Tuscany for so a week. So he does his own tour. He does his own tour. And look, he has the most amazing go? chateau. No, I'm too busy. 
you know, and his chateau is like 50 grand a week. This, oh, we're wow. talking a serious chateau with yeah. pool and maids and whatever. It's pretty deluxe. And he's like, would you come with me to Tuscany? Like what woman would say no to that? And I said to him, you know what, I can't. I'm too busy. Oh, my God. I'm too busy. I can't do it. Which I, Now that I think about it, I think that's insane. But You have to one time at least. I think I will at one time. And I was chatting today. I was just driving back from my farm this morning and I was starting to ring people to say, listen, I'm going to book you in on the tour next year because people have been on the waiting list for so long. And I was talking to this lovely client who was saying to me, I'm doing your tour and then I'm going to Germany to with this town that reenacts this play that's been happening for 300 years. It's part of their history about avoiding the plague. And then I'm going to um, Croatia. And I'm like, I don't travel for pleasure. I travel for business yeah. and I have very pleasurable business, but yeah. I don't travel on anyone else's tours. Uh-huh. Uh, that would be interesting for me. Never never have? Well, I used to travel for pleasure, but, you know, being an entrepreneur, you need to be committed and it's long hours. Yep. you got to put in the heart, yeah. You do. And I live for my business. Yeah. And even I'm lucky that I get to go to Paris and to Champagne and that yeah. is business for me. Yeah. But I don't do anything outside of that. Absolutely. Well, I'm the same. I think when you have your passion and you pursue that, it becomes your career. Mm-hmm. Very similar backgrounds, like yes. finance as well, accounting and finance, and then you know, obviously went on to this cooking show, MasterChef, and then now, you know, living and breathing what I love most. Just food is just my passion and have being able to do it in every different form possible is a dream for me. And the same for you, like with champagne, like nothing beats that. And if you can incorporate the holidays in your work, mm-hmm. why not? That's it. But you don't go away because you still want to learn about champagne as much as you can. Exactly. So I only take one week off a year. I take yeah. one week off in the first week of January over Christmas and New Year's. I think that's the only week that I can really be out of the business and no one notices or no one has an issue with it. Well, everyone else is away as well. Well, everybody else is away. <laughs> this is true, you know. And, I, and obviously I, I travel to Paris in the you know in the middle of the year to take my champagne tours. But, you know, I hit the ground running. From first day I'm yeah. working. I don't take a day off at the end. I'm, I'm straight out on the plane and I'm ready to go for Whatever comes Would next. you ever consider – do you have a house there? I have been looking for a chateau yeah. there. I got very close to buying a chateau two years ago just before COVID. I'd put an offer in on a chateau and I've been looking for about six years. And because Champagne was decimated by World War One, mm. many of the chateaus were destroyed and then the chateaus that are remaining are generally owned by the Champagne houses. So yeah. to try and find one in Champagne is quite rare. And I, I've done it. I've found the most beautiful oh. house. I was completely in love and besotted and I flew to Paris to finalise the deal and I took my French nanny with me and – the agent had gone quiet and I couldn't get hold of her. So I just turned up at the estate and this little old woman who spoke no English, who was 70, said, oh, the estate agent said you were risky. So she sold it to her friend for a lower price. And I was devastated and we fought it legally for a couple of months. But my lawyer said, Kylie, you're not going to win. You're a foreigner. You have no rights here. You know, you give up on that dream and keep looking, Um, which is why I've just bought the farm in Kilmore. I'm yeah. renovating a big farmhouse at the moment, yeah. which is, you know. Would you make it a chateau? It's, it's big enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big estate. Not quite, not quite the 28-room yeah. chateau that I was looking at in France, but as much as Kiri hates to know this, mm. I am still looking on a daily basis in of France. Of course. Yeah, well, yeah. it's your passion, isn't it? Yeah. How does our Australian sparkling mm-hmm. compare to champagne is it up and coming um obviously we're a lot younger at Mm -hmm. producing uh, sparkling wines but what are your thoughts on that i'm just really curious 
I think that some producers do it really well. Mm. But I think sparkling wine is a craft. It's an art. It's actually very difficult to make. And I don't like it when someone's going to go, oh, you know, I might knock out a sparkling this year. No. Sparkling to master is a labour of love. The equipment you require, you know, the, the technicality of how it's made, secondary fermentation in a bottle, the riddling, etc. You need a serious facility to do that. Mm-hmm. I think probably the best example of sparkling wine in Australia is coming from Tasmania. Right. They have that similar cool climate. You need cool climate to yeah. get that high acidity and that long ageing potential in sparkling mm-hmm. wines. Some of our Tassie producers are doing a pretty good job of it. And have actually there's um, a very good relationship between the Champenois and the Tasmanian winemakers. And, yeah, right. You know, pre-COVID, when our winemakers, you know, like Cyril Brun from Charles Heidsick, when they came out to Australia, they would also go down to Tasmania and, and, and take the time to get to know the Australian sparkling wine producers. So there's definitely a synergy and a shared learning there, which I think is amazing. Oh, I think I think we we've come a long way, and I think there's definitely a lot of potential there, isn't it? I do too. You know, and I think our Australian wines are known globally. Globally, yeah. but our Australian sparkling wines should also be, you know, of course, in the yeah, best restaurants absolutely. around the world. Same as the dairy industry, I think we have some local cheeses that are being produced as well, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, now I want to talk about with Emperor Champagne and over the pandemic, a lot of businesses have suffered throughout the pandemic, but your sales have increased. And it's I think I can also relate on that because of the dumplings that I stock at Coles and Woolworths, they've gone up and through the roof. And uh, over the pandemic, I think people, you know, spend a lot of time at home. And isn't it such a great industry to be in? Food, yes. Food, food and eat, eating and drinking is just... I think, the best industry to be in. Well, it's recession-proof, you Mm. know. So what's interesting about champagne and, you know, I've got – you know, a background in economics. So just looking at the market, what, what fuels the market. But, you know, in 2007, 2008, with the American sub-housing crisis and things hitting the skids, you know, that was the biggest year of champagne sales in history. It was huge. Amazing. So you have this almost reverse effect that when the world, you know, financially is in trouble, champagne sales go through the roof. So mm-hmm. we drink champagne to console ourselves. We drink champagne to celebrate it's a, almost a recession-proof business. Now, I haven't been so lucky in the Champagne Dame side of the business. Obviously, no presenting, no tours to France. Um, and I've pivoted as much as possible moving to virtual tastings. I do – I've got three virtual tastings this week. That's good. Yeah. That's amazing. That, yeah. You know, at least you can still do that. And I think people who have followed you mm. and have gone on your tours and love Champagne as much as you do – I mean, I don't think anyone loves Champagne as much <laughs> as you do now talking to you. Um, but I'm glad to hear that they're still continuing with it. And We pivoted, you yeah. know, and I've, I started doing a Tasmanian tour instead of a Champagne tour. Oh, and it's that's one of great. the best things I've ever done. I loved it. Like I yeah. – I've just I've written this beautiful tour for yeah. the Insiders Tour of Tasmania, which we sold out our first one. We've sold out our second one. They're just gorgeous. It's mm. absolutely beautiful. So it's given me a chance to look at something different, which is interesting. But yes, you're right. You know, I had an online business. Um, people were still celebrating birthdays and weddings and anniversaries at home, and they would trade up and buy a really special yes. bottle of something. You of know, course. and Emperor's all about the double delight. You know, every bottle comes luxury wrapped. You know, you buy something special. It just feels good to shop at Emperor. So we did a lot of that home delivery right through the pandemic and you know we 
been incredibly busy, which is good. And even in the first year of the pandemic, I took my high heels off. Yeah. I actually haven't put them back on, to be honest. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> I still hope I don't stack it. <laughs> and I went in, so I didn't know how my warehouse worked. So I decided I'm going to go and be um, box chick in the warehouse and I'm going to crank the tunes and um, hang out with the warehouse team and pack boxes. And, you know, that's what I did. We were so busy. I just packed boxes from sort of 9am to 10pm oh at God, night. Good on you. You know, there was not much else to do. I couldn't go to Paris. So it was good. I learned parts of my business. I thought about how I could improve efficiencies and, and we've really grown from there. So it's exciting. That's amazing. I was really, really, really interesting. Now I want to talk about your experience on uh, Real Housewives of Melbourne. And that's really exciting. Now I've obviously been on MasterChef before and I just want to know what your experience is of reality TV. Was it what you expected and also what made you think about going on? Because for me, it was for fun. I did it for fun. Yes. I really, I didn't have any sort of, I didn't think about it twice. I just kind of go, oh yeah, whatever. I'll just go an and experience. put my, yeah, I just like, I put my application through and then I got, got a call and next minute I'm in the competition and then you start to go into competition mode. I want to know what made you go, you know, I'm juggling three businesses, mm. but then, nah, nah, I'm going to have to find the time. I know. Um, to go on this show, like what was that? Well, it wasn't an easy decision. I think, mm. you know, you were probably more comfortable with your decision. I was approached by a producer, I reckon, two and a half years ago and she was very coy because I could see that she didn't want to blow the opportunity but she sort of rang the warehouse and said, oh, you know, is Kyla there? Um, and Kiri's like, yes, but can I help you? Who yeah. is this? He's vetting them. And he, she says, well, look, I'm a producer with Foxtel and yeah. – kind of just interested in talking to her about a show but I don't want to say too much and then she came in and she's like well you know we're recasting this show we're looking for you know independent entrepreneurial women who add a new dimension to the show and you know women look up to you and they aspire to you we think you'd be a great fit and Kiri's like, no way, no way, no way, no way. That's not Can't your have MO. Out of the business. Well, no. it's not even that. It's just that I am pro-women. I think women yeah. are the greatest species on the planet. I just think chicks are cool. Yeah. I love business women. I love women. I just love Strong women. Strong women. I love, I love all women. I mm. think women are amazing. And, you know, from what I'd seen of that show, and I hadn't watched it before apart from bits and bobs, but, you know, bites of it, th- there's a lot of confrontation. Yeah. A lot of drama. A lot of drama. Mm. I don't have drama in my no. life. I mean, I have drama yeah, you're in You're too business. busy to even think about drama. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know me, you know some of my friends. I have very close female relationships and I've had long, long, long-term relationships, 20, 30 years of relationships without ever having a fight with a friend. So it wasn't my MO. But I, I, for me it was, it was an interesting opportunity. How often does someone tap you on the shoulder and say, hang on, you know what, I think you'd be a great person and a great inspiration to other women through this channel. Yeah. You know, and you work in Champagne and our audience is, you know, women and lots of gay men around the, you know, around the world. And not to mention that Housewives is the biggest franchise on the planet right now. I mean, Beverly Hills is huge. New York is huge. It's just exploded. Yeah. The brand has been um, reinvigorated. They've got an amazing cast in many other countries and they're trying to bring in that certain... Um, calibre and character in Australia. So I could see the vision of where the producers wanted to go. So not an easy decision. I ummed and ahmed and sat on the fence and said no a few times and was gently sort of persuaded into it. And I said yes and and voila. Um, first year of filming was cancelled. We had another cast shake-up. Oh, so you meant to film in... Last year. Last year, 2021. Right. Oh. And because of COVID restrictions yeah, and of complexities, they Fair decided... Enough. Was it filmed in... Can you say? 
In well, in Melbourne, all over. Are uh, all over. So oh. they essentially follow your life. Yes. You know? right. So we're an ensemble cast. It is seven women. How long did it take to film? Four and a bit months. That's pretty long. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's a big commitment of time. It's That's sort of it. thirty to forty hours a week. Yeah. But could you still do your day to day life? As much as you can. Okay. Yeah. Right. As much as you can. So you still have access to. To phones and stuff. So when I was yeah. filming MasterChef, we were away for seven months. <gasps> we were oh we had no phones. We were locked away in this house. You were living with twenty three other strangers, and yeah, you just so you get into full competition mode. But it's a little. It's obviously a very different format. Wow. But, but it was so intense, right? That is intense. Yeah. You know, reality TV is a very interesting thing, it and is. you cannot deny its power. Mm. You know, humans watching this television show are with you. They're engaged in you. Well, they follow your journey. Yes. They want to, they wanna, I think, when they start watching you and they engage in you and they can relate mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. and then they just follow you, your journey. And even though when, you, you know, you're done on telly, it's, uh, they, continue. they continue to follow you because they, really, they feel like they know you watching you. And that's you. why it's very important to be authentic yeah. on television. And I have lots of different sides. I have glamorous Kyla. I have casual Kyla, you know. You Bacchus Marsh Kyla. Bacchus Marsh Kyla. <laughs> Kyla who gets mad and swears like a truck driver uh, Kyla. You know, look, I'm, I've come into the podcast today with the most ridiculous outfit on with I love non-matching it. socks and paint it. on my shoes <laughs> and pants that are too short and, you know, but I think at the end of the day it's really important to understand that our looks don't define us. Of course. And... You know, I remember one of the producers in the first briefing going, you're a housewife now. You can't leave the house, you know, in your sweat mm-hmm. gear. And, and I'm like, bullshit. No, I didn't sign you know? up for this. <laughs> well, that's okay for other people. Yeah. Each to their own in your life. Choose the way you want to live your life. But for me, my life is about being me mm. and all shades of me. And sometimes I'm incredibly glamorous and I'm very articulate and I present beautifully and I can be very glamorous. And other times I don't care whether I'm covered in paint. I forgot about an interview yesterday. I did it with white sand, sawdust all over my face, no makeup, <laughs> you know, sweaty, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's what's in your brain and in your heart that makes a difference in this world. It's not the way you yeah. look. And I think it's really important every now and then, if you look at my Instagram, that I'll post a picture of me with no makeup yeah. because I don't want people to think that, you know, I roll out of bed looking this way. Yeah, you know? I love that. It, I don't and mm. it doesn't matter. You know, the way you look is not important. Mm. The way you act, the way you behave is, yeah, what, and, is, and, is what is important. Yeah, and your morals and, and the way you are in life. And if you want to talk about challenges yeah. on reality TV, that was the biggest one. <laughs> I basically came right. into a, an ensemble cast with a group of women mm. who didn't have those shared values. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't not all of us saw eye to eye on um, aspects of kindness and respect. And, you know, you see some pretty intense television coming out yeah. um, on Foxtel over the next few I months as you see a clash between these values not stacking up. So lots of fireworks. <laughs> there will be fireworks. There will be yeah. fireworks. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was ill prepared for that mm. and um, it, it took an emotional toll and I, I shed a lot of tears. It hurts. People say, you know, it's just TV, but it's not TV. No, you know, it's it's, it hurts. You feel it. When you put yourself out there, it's very easy for everyone to sort of judge yeah. when you're watching someone else. Yeah. But you, you can't judge until you actually experience it. 100%. And when you're, when you're on, and I'm not sure whether it's the same with when you're filming for Real Housewives, whether there was, you know, at every, any one time, there was not just one camera guy. There was mm-hmm. the sound guy, there was the producer, there was the director, there was so many. The crew ran up to like, you know, 20, 30 people. But you know which people what's don't understand. Weird. I forgo- you forget about you the forget cameras about in it, the end. Of course. You forget about the cameras. Like, I remember having a big fight with someone... 
and you're not allowed to take your microphone off. It's like the golden rule, don't touch the mic because the mics are really expensive. And all the producers sit out the back in this bank, like a studio bank, so cameras, 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 so they're seeing the cameras in real life. They're sort of hiding out the back and I'd had this almighty, someone had attacked me on the show and I took off my microphone and I baseball through it at the <laughs> producer and I'm like, you know, the fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And I walked out. And I pushed the camera and I had a full dummy speed. Oh, God. And, you know, I'm in the middle of a busy venue. Like, we're in a pub. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, my God, this bird's lost it. She's cracked the shit. (laughs) (laughs) So there were a few colourful moments, but, you know. But that was you. You know, it's not every day that it's it's roses every day. It's, you know, it's, you know, you have bad days, you have good days. It's the same with, like, when, when I was cooking in the kitchen, sometimes you just, like, I produce it and I'm like, Diana, what the hell? What was that? Like, what did you just cook? (laughs) Like, you know, you're such a good cook. And then, like, sudden, but you have good days and bad days. The pressure, the cameras, like, just everything going on. You're hot and sweaty, and there's like 50 million things going. You're trying to look good as well. And it's just like, articulate. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. Look, I think reality TV is a really interesting Mm. um, genre of television. And then this whole new, you know, the block, MasterChef, all these kind of competitions where you see everyday Australians doing something extraordinary. I think that's probably my favourite type of television. I love that these ordinary average people who are working in supermarkets or, you know, working in a florist or whatever they do can come out and they've got these extraordinary skills. Now, that's the interesting part of this show is that person probably hasn't believed in themselves. They've got this immense, extraordinary talent and they haven't believed in themselves enough to make it their profession and their career. And that's really interesting as human beings. You know, I often hear people who come up to me at the end of a masterclass and go, Kyla, you know, you're so lucky. You've got this amazing job. And I I turn around and go, I wasn't lucky. You worked hard for it. Yes. (laughs) I believed in myself. I made a decision. I went in boots and all and I made that happen for me. And that's super important that... If you feel that you have a talent, an ability, a passion, something, explore it, mm. you know, and the only barrier to success is yourself. Absolutely. Forget about what everybody else thinks. Yeah. Forget about what your husband thinks or your wife or your mm. mom or your dad or, mm. you, you know, all those naysayers that naturally live around you. Forget yeah. about them. Mm. The only voice that really matters is the voice inside your head and just make sure that the conversation that you have with yourself is a really positive one. Because that's the most damaging conversation of all is that internal dialogue that says to you, I couldn't do that or I couldn't be that or I couldn't be successful or or could I? Mm. Was there any point that you – obviously juggling businesses that you thought, oh, gosh, I am tired, I want to give it up or I want to sell it off? And Was there any point that you had that thought in your head? No. But I started Emperor with the exit in mind. Of course. You always need a good exit plan. You need an exit plan. And that's easier. So when, you know, shit gets tough, I go, well, you know what? You've built this brand. I'm on a mission and I'm halfway through my marathon. So Mm -hmm. just keep going, Kyla. Just keep going. I'm four years in on an eight-year project. And that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is there. So when I'm you know, doing 12-hour days or things go wrong or, you know, things hit the fan and they always do, you know. Don't start a business thinking it's going to be rainbows and sunshine. It's not. Mm. I think the reason that most people fail in business is that they go in thinking it's going to be whistling Dixie. Yeah. 
amazing every day and it never is and then that's when they that's they, when they give up yeah but it's you give up too soon most people give up in the first three years or fail in the first three years you are not going to be successful you haven't even started yet no really first you can start a business is, yeah. is a baby yeah. you know you've got to walk and then you've got to crawl and then you've got to run and then you've got a business but the first three years are trial mode yeah. right survival mode you need to be on guard you need to be fighting if you're taking holidays in the first three years there's something fucking wrong with you you know you should be in there grinding in your business yeah. i know people that started oh, i'm gonna buy a porsche or mm. i'm like come on yeah so you shouldn't be spunking money in no. the first three years every cent you earn goes back into that business until you get out of danger and into safety from three to five seven to nine yeah that's when you can then you'll then you can buy a Porsche, you know. Then you can go to Tahiti for Christmas. But right now, yeah. no. It's a really good advice, actually, for a lot of people that are you know starting out as well, and um, mm-hmm. a lot of people that are out there, and especially you see now in, during the pandemic, and there's a lot of a lot of new businesses, and you I, I kind of want yeah, it's cool, but I also wonder like how long is that going to last? Because a lot of things are just very quick and, and easy and you know everyone jumped on the bandwagon of producing like activewear or like loungewear and then you kind of think like okay well how long is this going to last is it like a year thing or is it going to be here forever and you need to think about that before you go into a business yeah. you know you've probably got an eight year cycle of that business mm. before you sell it or exit or move on and you know maybe some industries are a bit shorter in that cycle but you need to think long term you need to think over and above that horizon line as yeah. to where you're going to be. And, and it is a marathon, you know. And if if you know you're the type of person that's a bit shiny ball syndrome where you start one thing and you put it down, you go to something else, entrepreneurship's probably not for you, yeah. you know, Don't because mm. you need to be steadfast. You need to be able to deal with pressure. Yeah, and perseverance. you got to stick with it the whole way. Now, you said you've got a, you know, sort of like an eight-year plan. So where where to from now with Emperor Champagne, like – Talk to me about the the third arm of your business that you're doing. So the big um, win for us over the past 12 months is signing one of the biggest champagne houses in the world for exclusive imports, so Nicolas Fayette, um, which is the number one selling champagne in France and the number three in America. No, number three globally, actually, not just in America. For us to bring that in and distribute it, Dan Solely. Murphy, well, Dan Murphy's have two supermarket SKUs and uh-huh. we have the rest of the portfolio. Oh so my all gosh. the flagships. Congratulations. So that's huge for us. You yeah, know, and my mission is to get Nikki Fu, which is a beautiful champagne, to be in the top four champagnes in Australia within four years. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's up to $25 million a year in sales. So that's, you know, a substantial growth in, in my business. It's um, That's an exciting plan. So now that I've got a bigger champagne brand, I'm doing a lot more. So we're partnering with the Fashion Festival as the exclusive champagne next year Amazing. we're partnering with the art festival um we're doing some you know yacht soirees with headed caviar in sydney we're doing breakfast at tiffany breakfast we've got a whole bunch of things happening um with emperor and with um, nicolas fiat champagne that just a lot bigger than what we've done previously so now i'm about scale and um, elevating mm-hmm. and then sort of like working towards that sort of goal of bringing him on board and yes that's yes amazing. so that's big for us you know we've got huge growth plans and but I'm very firmly fixed on my sort of exit. That means Dame. I've kept Dame as a separate business. My presenting, yeah. my you know, and they'll still go France. on. And because yes. you, that's that's what you love. That that's what you started, isn't it? It is. And look, there's yeah. nothing to say that I. I, would, I don't think I'll give up work. I'll be happily retired. But I think you know I could take a position in a very senior role in a global champagne house and make yeah. an immense difference. Because I think you know I've seen champagne from every aspect and what should be done and what could be done. You know, so who knows? I might move to Paris and take on the role or America or buy, somewhere buy else. Buy a chateau. And 
and live I there. I will do that. <laughs> and, you know, I love to renovate. Mm. I'm always renovating in my spare time. I, uh, Are yeah. you still in touch with the, the author? He's passed away. Oh, sorry. He was already in his yeah. 60s, late 60s when I met him and that was 16 years ago. Right, so okay. He's long gone, sadly, but I remember our experiences fondly. And the first day that I met him, he took me to Amazing. a beautiful chateau called Chateau Le Creuse, which is an extraordinary place if you want to dine there, Diana. I know you'd love this. I'm, I'm going to get a whole list from you when I do. You know what? I'm actually going to write a guide at some point for Champagne because I just I know it so well and people ask me all the time. Yeah. I couldn't tell you how many emails I get saying, I'm going to go to it's Champagne. It's never been done. No, it's not. It's not. You have to. There you go. Yeah. Book deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have another book in my head, um, yeah. which I'm dying to write. But again, I'm, I'm time poor. You know, I'm just a passionate human being. And yeah. when I do something, I do if it If only you could clone yourself. Well, I know. And, mm. you know, quite often people say that to me. You need someone else who can mm. present like you can present. But I think everybody's unique. I don't want someone to present like no. I present because my head's full of, of ideas. history. Yeah. You know, and stories. And, I mean, I can't remember what I had for lunch um, and I can't often remember my partner's birthday but I know everything about <laughs> champagne you know I don't forget <laughs> a detail I know oh, how many children were killed in the war in the vintage of 1914 oh, you know I know all this stuff about champagne I'm an encyclopedia what's, I don't remember yesterday what's the best year for champagne oh, so well look ni- 96 was yeah. pinnacle um, and then 1928, you know, if, the, if you're going to compare vintages, they were two um, outstanding vintages. But, you know, in the last 10 years, 08 was exceptional. Yeah. They're just about all gone, although you might find something on Emperor towards Christmas. Ooh, we're launching something special. And then, look, 12 was great. So if you're out there at the moment and you're buying champagnes, 12 was a beautiful year. 13 looks good. It was very different. But it tends to be the eight, the, the even numbers, eight. So eight, 10, 10 12, 14. Okay, there you go. Good to know. That's a good tip. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But, you know, when you're buying champagne from champagne, you can never go wrong. You can never go wrong. Mm. Yeah. There's, a, there's something special about that region. There's no other region in the world that's as heavily guarded and protected mm. and with as many rules as the Champagne region. Yeah. You know? Number one, they have the most difficult climatic conditions in the world to grow grapes. Incredibly challenging to get through a harvest in Champagne. What about the terrain? And the terrain, I mean, well, you've got chalk. Beds, mm. you know, huge layers and layers and layers of chalk underneath these rolling vineyards. So incredibly difficult to grow a vine in chalk, but also is the perfect ingredient for giving them that uh, minerality and the tension and mm. the, you know, the, the sort of um, the stress on the vines creates this wonderful intensity in the fruit. So very interesting region. I mean, I think not an easy job. If you were going to be born in a champagne family or a Burgundy family, you'd probably want to be born to the Burgundy family because you're sunning yourself with your mistress in the French Riviera by the time <laughs> the harvest is over, whereas the Champenois are just getting started. Um, but, you know, it's certainly a labour of love and mm. there's reasons why it's expensive. You know, it's, it's a difficult wine to produce yeah. from some of the most expensive land in the world. But, wow, what a beautiful region to visit. And so, just so much history. It's so rich in history. There's so rich in history. Yeah. That's the bit that will keep oh my me gosh. working in Champagne forever is I will always continue to uncover more and more stories of such, yeah. such an interesting region. Well, by the sounds of it, there's so many other producers and up-and-coming up ones, do you reckon, as well? Yeah. yeah. So we've got this whole cool wave of new producers coming through in Champagne. So Champagne's gentrifying at the moment. No longer is Champagne just about highfalutin society and you don't just drink Champagne when you're in a you know, a classic bistro degustation situation in Paris, you know. And we're very big advocates of this, that champagne should be consumed with fried chicken mm. or with hamburgers or oh, dumplings. Fried chicken and caviar. 
Ah, oh, exactly so right. You know, <laughs> or dumplings. Yes, dumplings. Love it. You know, so beautiful rosé champagne <laughs> and dumplings mm. is sensational. So we're all about the democratization of champagne. Mm. You know. You don't need to be wearing a fur coat and stilettos to drink champagne. I'm sure that's why people think that I prance around in my office. You know, the reality <laughs> versus um, what people assume is is wildly, wildly different. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's this whole new wave of young grower producers who are taking a little bit of what granddad did and a little bit of what dad did and a little bit of what Rudolf Steiner did and a little bit of what they learnt doing harvest in Margaret River and a little bit of what they learnt, you know, studying in Burgundy and mashing it all together, staying within the rules but just ever so slightly and we're getting more interesting champagnes coming out and it's just so cool. You know, the labels have changed from being very traditional to very clean and contemporary and modern and we've got this whole new wave of cool cult wine growers coming through and really that's where Empress specialises. You know, we are telling the stories of these uber cool cats that are huge in New York and huge in Berlin and huge in London, but you come to Australia and they're like, who are they? Who are these these guys, you know? But it's all about educating people, isn't it, at the Uh, end of the day? For sure, for sure. And, you know, we we see Emperor as being the voice of champagne in Australia. We're the home of champagne in Australia. If you want to find something cool, if you want to explore, get off that big, you know, heavily worn Grandmark track of the champagne houses. You know what? You know, going f- you have Verve Co. Yeah. That's for me. That's the entry level. You go way north from yeah. there, and that's where champagne really gets interesting. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, that's so interesting, and I've actually learned so much already just chatting to you in the last you know forty five minutes. Um, you have to come to champagne. I do. Me. I do. I'm definitely on for the when you can fit me in. Yes, um, I will. please put me on the top of the list. I will. And we'll, we'll make a whole food and food and wine tour as well whilst we're there. Yes, Why not? Let's do it. I'm mindful of time and um, I just want to say thank you so much for for sharing your story. I loved it. I think, you know, you're such a formidable force to reckon with and you have so much insight into your passion that it, it, it's electrifying. Just li- listening to you talking about champagne is actually electrifying and it makes me want to go and have a whole bottle of champagne now it actually does um and it's I, always champagne yeah. up in my fridge <laughs> and I yeah I just have so much respect for you so I'm really glad and really proud to call you my friend and I'm I'm looking forward to watching the real housewives of Melbourne thank you for coming in thank you Diana <laughs> thanks for having me I'll okay. share a bottle of champagne with you very soon very soon when we can <laughs> thank you